Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And Ed, you were just talking to me about the beach. You do not like the beach. Uh, no, no, I don't, uh, particularly. I'm, I'm, I'm now, even though it was 30 seconds ago, I'm trying to figure out why we were talking about this, but no. We were talking I, about I the beach because we were talking about, <laughs> we were talking about Inferno. Dante's oh, that's Inferno, right. We're talking, we're talking about the fact that, yeah, we're talking about hell and we're talking about the fact that blasphemers, uh, blasphemers, uh, in Dante's Inferno are, um, uh, in the third ring of the seventh circle of hell, and they are made to lie stretched out upon their backs on hot sand while fiery flakes fall down upon them. And you were saying that to you, that sounds just like the beach. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be clear, I like the water. I, um, I grew up on lakes and occasionally, uh, going to the actual seashore. So I like the water. Um, but no, the beach is, I mean, my, well, I mean, I guess my abiding memory as, as a child when we still lived in Chicago was going to the beach in the summer, which we did absolutely every day in summer vacation. And I would just get horrendously sunburned. So at the beach, I, at the beach of the, the lake, the lake beach, the great lake beach. Yes. And so my, my sort of, uh, instinctive free association of beaches, sand and basically baking and getting, you know, all over massive sunburn. So yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not instinctively sympathetic to the beach. I do like the water. I do like, you like the water. And you were telling me that you believe that you like boats, ships. I do. Well, I mean, I, I have, I mean, you were, you, you first said I like ships and, um, I do. I challenge the prospect that you are regularly, um, on, on or around ships with nothing, you know, it's nothing personal. Uh, no, I just I, don't imagine that, you to be fair. on the Dawn Treadle every weekend or something like this. No, that's fair. I, I have not spent much, if any time at sea, so to speak. Uh, but I did, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of kayaking. Oh, I really? To... Uh, sea kayaking? Ocean kayaking? No, I, I did river kayaking. I, I would do whitewater kayaking. It was, um, it was a, it was a hobby of mine in my early teens. I was, I was actually quite good at it. At the, it at the British National Whitewater Center? Um, uh, we, I, I often would, the, uh, the school I went to, uh, was on a river. And so there was some, there were some, you know, gentle fast parts to that. And then we would, once a year, we would go to a place in Wales, uh, where the, where the sort of national whitewater kayaking run, uh, it's a place in Wales called the bitches. And, uh, we would, is it really, it. it is, I swear, I'm not making that up. That's a real thing. Why is it called that? They're Welsh JD. Who knows why they do what they do? Okay, um, cool. No, that's a real thing. I was a member of the British Canoe Union, and I, I, I got as far as my three-star award. I, I, I could kayak. There was a time in my life when I did things. I still I still maintain I do whitewater kayaking in my spare time, of which I have none. Yeah, it's just that you haven't had spare time apparently since then. Yeah, I think it's yeah. fair. I'm trying to remember if I had kayaking merit badge, which is the closest that I could come to the thing that you just said. I mean, I definitely had canoeing merit badge. I mean, this is a Boy Scout thing? Yeah, yeah. So I, what did you have to do to get your canoeing merit? Did you like have to help a canoe across the street? Is that... <laughs> you had to help a canoe. Yeah, I don't know. The thing is that, um, I, you know, I, I spent some time working at scout camp as a as a young man. And, um, you know, after work, after the, the after sort of work for the day, we would we were all certified to sort of convey certain merit badges, but we were also ourselves scouts. So after work for the day, we would have a little sort of like, you might say, quick, quick courses, crash courses in the various requirements of merit badges that we ourselves taught and we would sort of 
take turns giving these crash courses, demonstrating the required competencies, and then moving on to the next merit badge. And would so, you award yourself a merit badge? For no, that's just the point. Is oh, for having given someone else one. Yeah. No, I don't think there's a merit badge giving merit badge. What about a, a crash course giving merit badge? No, I'm pretty sure. I, I I take it you have very little experience with scouts. I have no experience with scouting. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm aware of scouts. I, I have seen people in scout uniforms, and they're usually decked out like they did five tours in Nam. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much my whole experience. <laughs> like in a lot of camouflage, you mean, or... Well, no, and like sort of a whole chest full of campaign ribbons. Oh, right. Sure, sure, sure. You know, I went to a scout camporee in your home and native land of England. Um, when I, I want to say I was about 15, and I went to a scout camporee in um, in Sherwood Forest, actually, in, in Nottinghamshire, which, you know, like I got there and I, I was sort of embedded with this British scout troop as an American scout. And I embedded? Kept saying, what were you? <laughs> what, you what dumped fox right holes? I was, I was appended to this British scout troop. Uh, you know, because it, I, I, it wasn't less of my whole troop when I just went. There was some kind of program or something. I don't know. I just went. Anyway, um, so I sort of appended to this scout troop for the purposes of camping with them and these kinds of things at this camporee. And I kept, you know, pointing out to them how neat it was that we were in Sherwood Forest, but they were wholly and entirely unimpressed with, with that fact. Yeah, that, that, that about, that tracks. Yeah, I mean, their point was like, well, yeah, dude, it's a forest. And I was like, yeah, you know, Robin Hood and everything. And they're like, yeah, but that was, yeah, it's a forest. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Well, Ed, um, with that, uh, with that diversion out of the way, we are going to spend a, a lot of this show, if it's all right with you, and, and I think it is, um, I, I have some things I want to talk about this show, and, um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, um, so I guess I'm not even really asking if it's you, but we're, we're gonna, this show is going to be a little bit different because we're, we're not exactly going to talk about the news, but I, we are going to talk about the church. Um, and, uh, and here's what I mean. I, well, first of all, how are you, Ed? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it's been a, it's been a busy enough week in the yeah. news. Some stuff has happened. Uh, yeah. we've written some things. I'm, I'm pleased with our output. We, yeah. we've got a, a new team member at the pillar in, in our old friend, Michelle LaRosa, which I'm we pleased do indeed. about. Yeah, we do indeed. Many, many good things. Um, but I want to kind of, um, kvetch for a while or not kvetch. I just want to sort of talk about my experience in the church because I think it maybe, maybe it resonates with other people's experience in the church. Maybe it won't. I don't know, but I just, um, uh, this is our show so we can talk and, and it's, it pertains to the life of the church and we can talk about the life of the church. Can we not? We can. If the, the entire point of us having our own show is for you to talk about whatever tickles your fancy. (laughs) And you as well. I mean, I would wish for you to speak about those things which tickle you as well. Oh, we, we talked about baseball last week. We did for quite some time. pretty set. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. We talk a lot, Ed, about the notion of the church as a perfect society. Um, not perfect in terms of being the not ter- perfect in terms of the church on earth being um, uh, sinless, which is to say that we who are um, part of the communion of the church ourselves are certainly sinners, as are um, those who have not yet become saints. Um, but uh, we we talk about the church as a perfect society in terms of being sort of whole and complete. That is to say. Um, the space in which believers can um, uh, in wholly and entirely sort of in, live um, and invite others into the communion of the church and these kinds of things as well. And and um, one sense of that is I think the, the more, um, for me at least, you know, the, uh, as time goes on, I suppose, as my life goes on and my professional life being what it is and my family life being what it is, just it, the church becomes an all-encompassing society and that sort of 
there become can become a way in which more and more of your life is just lived in the context of of, of Holy Mother Church in one way or another. Sort of the, the parish becomes the cent- a central part of your life, and apostles of the parish become a central part of your life. And obviously, for us, that's sort of compounded by the fact that we uh, our our work is is um, oriented in the direction of the interior internal life of the church. And um, and and. Uh, the church is a society, uh, a perfect society in many senses, but as I said, not in a sinless sense. And so the more our lives are lived entirely in the sort of vein and, and milieu of the church, the more frequently we have the occasion to experience ordin- all of the ordinary and common sort of conditions of sin and tension and um, difficulty and um, disagreement and distress in the life of the church, in the sort of day-to-day life of the church that we might in any other um, social milieu in which we found our, in, in which we were inserted. So I have just had like a week of, um, it's only Thursday, so I guess less than a week, but uh, but maybe it's been going on longer than that too. I have just been having a, just a series of just challenges of diff, different, a, a series of challenges on different fronts in, in sort of in, in the life of the church of late. Um, I have been helping, uh, a, 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 our listeners know I'm a canon lawyer, I've been helping a friend with some canon law issues, and he has been coming up against some real difficulties that strike him as injustices and with, with which I agree that strike me as injustices as well. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, sorry to, to see that. Um, I've been uh, helping another friend who works in a diocese kind of sort through some things and she's just been experiencing some tension in the life of the church among, you know, various people who kind of who work in it in, in, in the chancery where she works about the best way to sort of proceed on some critical projects and then on a very personal level, we, Kate and I have been kind of just trying to um, just set some things up connected to our kids um, in, in the life of the church. And I, I don't really want to go into it for a few reasons, but just sort of trying to set some things up in the context of the church for our kids and feeling discouraged by a sort of reluctance um, or some roadblocks that, that, that seem unclear to us or that are not, do not make much sense to us. Um, that have been disappointing to us, people who have, have felt like sort of we thought would be able to be helpful to us in certain ways, haven't been helpful to us in certain ways. And so I have just been feeling um, just discouraged about the practical day-to-day life of the society of the church, or just on various fronts kind of let down. Um, procedural justice for this friend, sort of the pol- political issues in the chancery with, a, with this other issue, and then just kind of I don't know, a sense of discouragement about um, about certain things that we've been trying to work on for our kids. So all those things can compound, you know, and, and one can just get, the more that one sort of lives one's day-to-day life in the church, one can just get sort of discouraged in the ways that one would, as I say, in any other community. But there's a difficulty, there's a tension, because the church is not any other community, is not only a natural community, is um, the body of Christ, uh, the mystical body of Christ, the people of God, a sacrament of salvation, um, and, uh, and has a supernatural end. The Church is sanctifying for us uh, through the sacraments, but also through ecclesial communion. And it just, you know, the, the tension between those two things, what the Church um, kind of ought to be, and then what the Church... Oh, and then another friend is having a real t- kind of difficulty in his parish with some things that were rolled out in a very uh, poor way that have been really kind of discouraging for a lot of families, and he's not been able to get much redress, and the in that particular case, the pastor's not been very receptive. And, and so, you know, those kind of things, the, the tension between, um, I think, I, I suspect for a lot of people who, who, who practice the faith and who believe wholly entirely in the supernatural identity of the church, you know, the, the tension between that and just the stress and challenges of day-to-day life in the church can sometimes be very difficult. I, I've, I've been feeling, I think, of late, 
to be perfectly candid, as discouraged um, about a few things as I probably felt in 2018 about McCarrick. And, you know, not because any of them are as egregious as that, but because they're just sort of, I just keep coming after sort of one roadblock, discouragement, injustice, lack of charity after another. Uh, And some of them are just, you know, probably, you know, unquestionably there are other perspectives on all of them. And my perspective is not infallible by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't know, Ed, that, that, there are seasons, right? There are seasons in, in any relationship. There are seasons in our relationship to the church and seasons of flourishing and joy and abundance and then seasons of uh, what can feel like much more dryness or discouragement. And, uh, and, and I guess I've just sort of entered into one of those and, and am, uh, you know, sad about that. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly true, and I, I know exactly what you mean about... Uh, living um, your entire professional and personal life in in the society of the church that that is a that that's a that that presents a particular set of spiritual challenges and I mean it's true you know like you said and you know to be clear it's it's at once sort of aberrant in the sense that most Catholics get up and go to work and work isn't the church right. and for many families you know they take their kids to school and school isn't the church and you know there there are all these other sort of spheres of society which in which the only presence of the church really is is hopefully them mm-hmm. um living out the the evangelical mission of of everyone um but yeah i mean you know when you say the church is a perfect society that's that's entirely true that you know it is it is it holds itself out to be um a society complete unto itself in the sense that you can and should be able to do to order the church can order itself and provide everything that is needed within the structures of a society the society for itself it doesn't depend on on anything else to do so and and if you find yourself sort of living in that um entirely in that sphere it it does because i mean the people are people everywhere um i was reading a, a very good column today uh by, by someone I don't know, but I gather as a friend of yours, uh, pointing out that, you know, in a truly Christian society, there would be Christian dope peddlers and there would be, you know, Christian I haven't read who, that column. It's great. Strongly recommend. Um, but, you know, in a, in a holy Christian society, it's not to say that everyone's a saint, that, you know, there will be Christian dope peddlers, there will be Christians who run red lights, there will be, you know, Christian meter maids who will write you a ticket for you know stopping for five minutes while you run mm-hmm. into the grocery store that all of the normal frustrations of daily life don't disappear because everyone is a you know is, is a baptized catholic that people are people wherever you go but there's an especial dimension of frustration living uh you know with daily frustrations when you encounter them in the context of the church because rightly necessarily we hold the the church out as a higher example and have higher expectations and expect that every interaction will and i mean it's a reasonable expectation well it's i don't know if it's a reasonable expectation it's a just expectation i don't know if it's reasonable um but there is the expectation that everyone involved will always have before their eyes the universal call to holiness the desire to you know put the other one first to see christ present in the other uh and so when you when you meet the sort of daily frustrations of dealing with other people who at least in my family, we always say other people ruin everything. Yeah, um, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, you can you, you can come up against a hard stop there, and it can be spiritually challenging. I mean, you know, I've I think I've said on the podcast before um, that it can grind you down. I mean, I when I was working as basically a full time canonical defense attorney, 
um, it really ground me down. I was, you know, I, I got to the point where I, I was so ready to do something else. I took a because job. Because there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of, in, there's, there's a lot of, a injustice. lot of injustice. Yeah. A lot and, of and not just injustice. in the sort of criminal way of, you know, bad people doing terrible things that the church has to grapple with, but the sort of petty injustices of daily human life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who have their, people who are railroaded, people who have their rights trampled on, people who yeah. behave in a, in a selfish and aloof manner that these are, you know, Sometimes for very petty ways, you know, sort of tin tin pot dictators or petty tyrants wielding small amounts of power, you know, over practically over practically nothing, you know. Um, Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I mean, this and again, this is true of all wherever there is human society, Mm -hmm. there there are these sort of, you know, venial sins of everyday life. And when you encounter them um, in the church and, you know, depending on your on the sphere of life that you live in, like we do, if you're almost every encounter of them is in the church it's hard to to not lose sight of the the concept of the church as the mystical body of Christ as the right. as the sacrament of salvation for the whole world to try and um, you know keep that uh, in front of us it's definitely hard and I mean this is true in in parish life you know people yeah. who go to church and you know I, I don't know and I'm I, this is not me there's no subtext to this I'm literally right, making right. an example at random mm-hmm. I want to be absolutely clear but you know someone just really hates the choir director say, why do we have to sing that bloody him you know every yeah, yeah. you know and you know to go out and you know people things grind you down they do and it happens and you know it, it's hard and i think the real risk isn't just to lose sight of um the church being the mystical body of christ being the sacrament of salvation being the place where we encounter god um but worse to develop a sort of schizophrenic view of the church to wholly separate Right. You know, say, well, this is the human part of the church, and that's garbage. And then right, there's the right, divine right. part, and we, we just try and ignore the, the garbage human parts as best we can. You can't and, possibly hold the divine part if you sort of just completely write off the human part in that way. Well, because the church is incarnational. Right, that, exactly. That God exactly. exists in the church in the people, that's through right. the people. That, you know, yeah. we have, <laughs> as, you know, you mentioned the McCarrick scandal, we have in the church and have always had, and I unfortunately, I think we probably always will to some degree, have very unworthy people serving mm-hmm. in the church. But... Yet, you know, ex opere operato, that it is through the unworthy servants that, you know, which we all are, that Christ is manifested in the church. And so it's really hard to sort of see through um, the flawed humanity of of so much of that to to the divine, which is always right in front of us. So, yeah, I, I totally get it. I'm. I'm sorry. Yeah. You, I, I can only recommend what what worked for me when I was really at a low ebb, which is: Have you considered a career in journalism? <laughs> I thought you were going to suggest vengeance, which I do not. Oh, vengeance also. That, that <laughs> no, always, well, I mean, I mean, the two are kind of tied. For yeah, me. they're tied. I couldn't there. get justice on the inside. <laughs> I went rogue and started writing in public instead. Well, yeah, I mean, so that's just the interesting thing is I I, I want to talk about that because um, just first of all I I I have always. Uh, felt badly for, and you know, presbyters as well as I do, you know, um, pastors deal with a lot of crap, you know, crap runs downhill, pastors deal with a lot of crap from the, from the, you know, from the chancery or issues in the sort of administrative bureaucratic life of the church, and at the same time have to deal with, you know, lots and lots of small problems in their parishes that can compound, and, and, um, and, you know, yeah, it is not uh, it is not an easy thing uh, to be a pastor or to, to be in pastoral ministry at all. Um, it is not an easy thing to be, for that matter, a uh, procure vicar or, or, or a layperson working in the life of the church. I mean, there's no easy thing, right? But So that's fine. But, um, but you know, I, I, uh, I think 
there's a point at which, you know, um, everyone knows kind of, we certainly know the sort of, um, you know, cynical pastor who seems to sort of expect the worst at all times and kind of just be, you know, grumbling around at all, you know, at all these things and has sort of been uh, beaten down by these, by these um, realities um, and become so, you know, something of a, a scoffer and a, and, a, and a cynic. And, um, and then everyone knows a pastor who has perhaps faced the same kinds of crosses, seen the same kinds of things, um, and, and perdures in hope. And uh, I think sometimes it's easy for people to sort of um, just r- write off the first one um, or, you know, just sort of just regard him as having no faith or, or um, being indifferent or, um, you know, be just being totally cynical person without sort of appreciating that um, that second person only perdures by grace, you know. And, and so I just think about how, how many times I've sort of looked at those who have become sort of cynics in the life of the church or those who have become sort of just, uh, yeah, just sort of cra- cravenly cynical, uh, how many times I've sort of looked at them with judgment. And at the same time, sort of the more that I think either of us probably experiences various disappointments in the life of the church, it's only by grace, by perduring in an interior life, but even that perduring is a grace that any of us are able, I think, to to uh, to not fall into that that sort of craven, skeptical cynicism that that just um, suggests a lack of the supernatural virtue of faith. Well, I I think that's true, but also to to see that the the body of Christ always exists. Um, you, you can call it either dynamic tension or equilibrium, spiritual equilibrium, depending on how you how you want to view it, I guess. But you know that the, the the sins of the church, the sins of the members of the church are, if you like, priced into the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, where, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds, the more, sure. But, you know, how many, you know, there are, there have been saints who have had, for example, the stigmata and have been told in, you know, in their, in their visions, in their spiritual life, uh, have, you know, been told you are, you are receiving the stigmata and you are experiencing this physical pain and, um, in atonement for the right. unworthy members yeah. of the church, yeah. you know, that, you know, and there, I mean, there have been great saintly priests who've, you know, who've had visions of the unworthy priests celebrating mass in terrible ways or in terrible circumstances and said, you, this is, this is what you are being offered this cross to atone for. And so I think having that understanding in dealings with the church, I mean, you mentioned my, my penchant for vendetta, um, which I definitely have. <laughs> Uh, and one of the ways I try and keep that instinct at bay is to remember that when, and this is easy, it's always easier for me to, to put off sort of vengeance when it's, you know, myself that feels aggrieved rather than me feeling aggrieved on behalf of someone else, um, which has certainly happened on more than one occasion as a, as a canon lawyer. Um, but to see that when you're offered, um, when you're offered injustice, that, you know, the, 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 the mandate of the gospel is to embrace it. To embrace mm-hmm. right. the experience of injustice and to right. say that this is where each of us is given the opportunity to be Christ to the other, to take the sins of the other on ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and even more, and paradoxically, to consider the other superior to ourselves as we're doing it. Mm-hmm. There yeah. are people in my parish whom I see every week, sometimes more than once a week, and they drive me absolutely loony. And I think some of the things that they get up to uh, in the parish and in the church and sometimes during the mass are appalling <laughs> and reprehensible and mm-hmm. I would like nothing more than to bust out the canon law badge and yeah. you know put an end to it but you know what I what I have to constantly tell myself um, 
and and realize that it's not Catholic shtick, that it's actually spiritual truth, right. is that these people are better than me. Right. That these people are not nearly as grievous of sinners as I am. That yeah. truly this is this is, you know, this is Christ putting in front of me saying, You you think that's bad? Right. You think this is, have a you know, have a look in your own heart and to see that, yeah, what's in my heart more often than it ever should be is well, violence and revenge, quite mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah, Those yeah. are my sort of default sins of choice. But yeah. um you know, to see that they're there and to see that I I need to be confronted constantly with these these sort of daily injustices and my desire to to impose my will on others and to see that this is what this is what this is the root of my sin. That I am nowhere near you know the image of the suffering servant who can climb the cross that this yeah. this ain't me and that's where i need to get because you know we started off talking about the beach and hell and i right. i don't wish to go either to the beach or to hell <laughs> and the only way not to go to hell is to climb the cross and that yeah is something i i struggle to do every day yeah and i think often there's a very su- sort of su- I'm, I'm glad you say that because i think very often there's a very sort of superficial sense of the notion of offer of sort of offering it up and a, a failure to recognize that um you know, this Catholic notion of, of offering it up is um, um, perhaps in one sense a very immediate act of the will, but in another sense um, a, a, a choice that in itself requires um, the grace of, of uh, humility, the grace of repentance, of conversion, um, the grace of charity towards another for whom I would offer things up. I mean, like to suffer, for example, like to sort of bear wrongs um, silently or to bear wrongs joyfully, and I'm not sort of talking about situations of abuse of any kind, but to sort of bear wrongs willingly um, in, in a... In a no, the petty venial injustices. Right, the petty venial injustices. We're not talking about right. grotesque abuse. Right, right exactly. But to, to bear those things um, willingly or even joyfully is not um, just just done by a sort of snap of the fingers, act of the will, and, and it can be done only in a, only in a superficial way that, that would ultimately sort of crumble into the sort of pile of self-destruction that is Pelagianism. Um, uh, to be done truly, you know, to bear things w- willingly, to 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 um, to offer our suffering for the for the salvation of others, for the conversion of others, requires a kind of humility and a disposition of charity uh, that has to begin in grace, and uh, and for which I think probably we have to beg for the grace before we're able we're able to do that. So I'm I'm glad you point that out. The, the other thing, you know, that kind of I'll, I'll tell you a story that's a sort of count, counterfactual. Please do, like because it's not easy. And when you, God forbid, you should ever say to someone, "Offer it up," because you know I, I think you're justified to get a you know get a five finger handshake across the face if you do because you know you're you're asking for it. Um, <laughs> my grandfather used to say that to my grandmother all the time when she would complain about anything, and you know would would often say well offer it up and this would drive my grandfather wild and on one occasion she was complaining that she didn't have any friends and you know and he said well offer it up the only friend you need is jesus and her response is you can't have lunch with jesus (laughs) now history doesn't record whether my grandfather said something about daily mass um right hopefully 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 he had the prudence at that point to call it a yeah i I hope at that point he he just Mm -hmm. took to his study and laid low for a little bit but anyway so it's this none of this is to say there's a glib answer right yeah and and that i think is very interesting because that reality the fact that these that the that these kinds of things um the acceptance of suffering in the christian life the disposition of charity towards others in the christian life the things that are demanded of us by virtue of the sinfulness of others in the church and by virtue of our own sinfulness in the the church humility repentance conversion 
Um, none of those things are easy. All of those things are a life, uh, a sort of lifelong surrender or a uh, hundred thousand acts of surrender over the course of a lifetime to, to, to the realization that we're not God. We have no right to get our own will. We have no right to get the things that we're, uh, we think are just or even are just. Um, we don't, you know, and, uh, None of those things are easy, but 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 the, and that points to I think something that um, the church is now grappling with that I I sometimes think about you know people sometimes ask me about our work our work does not uh, we don't write you know five features a week about a nice man at the parish doing um, a, a nice thing you know shoveling off people's cars during mass uh, you know we don't write um, our work is not focused wholly and entirely on sort of um, the stories of uh, uh, good things happening among, you know, ordinary people in the life of the church. There's a place for that, and it's an important place, and I'm glad for that to happen, but we spend a lot of time focusing on the need for institutional reform and ecclesial renewal in the life of the church. Um, We, uh, canon lawyers, joke about sort of being, working in the dark side of of the good news, and and we sort of... um, Right, you know, we we write and report willingly, and because we think it's important, um, you know, about things that are in need of reform in the life of the church. But as a consequence of that, you know, sometimes people have asked me in the past, and maybe have asked you too. You know, do you think that by doing that, you're harming church, but the the church by bringing forth scandal or making it more difficult to evangelize by um, giving a an impression of the church that it is filled with uh, flawed sinners and those kinds of things? And 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 the answer is that I, I I don't think that we're bringing scandal. I think the scandal exists by virtue of the bad action, and I think reform requires um, that those things be uncovered and brought to light in order to be addressed. Um, but the second question, sort of, do you think that you're giving people a negative perception of the church is a fascinating one, because I do think there's a sort of movement uh, at times, an instinct, an inclination, which sometimes becomes even programmatic and is probably embedded in certain sort of programs of uh, catechesis and evangelization um, that w- would present um, a far sort of rosier picture of the life of the church than is reality. Um, that would sort of, in order to make uh, to to suggest that the Christian life is attractive, suggest that um, relationships among Christians are often characterized by um, peace, love, and rock and roll. When um, for many of us who spend a, a great deal of time in the society that is the church, that is not our experience. We are often, as Father Tom Berg says, hurting in the church. Um, and uh, and so you know the the question becomes how does one avoid that superficiality, um, uh, that that sort of glib superficiality, which ultimately offers I think a um, a, a, pro- a, a and ultimately offers a false promise, an unfulfilled promise, and and, and an insufficient promise um, uh, about what the Christian life is and what it's for. But how does one sort of avoid that while at the same time speaking to the goodness, beauty, and and holiness and, and integrity of the church? I think that's something that really does have to be thought about carefully and, and, and examined carefully and, and approached carefully uh, in, the, in the work of the proclamation of the gospel. Well, and I think part of the answer lies in an authentic uh, sort of Christian anthropology of ecclesiology, um, so to speak, which is, you know, the, the sort of enlightenment maxim of hell is other people mm-hmm. has, uh, has a certain attractiveness, <laughs> at least to me. Um, but that in the church we propose something different, which is to say, Jesus Christ is other people, right. and to <laughs> to propose that is not to you know is not to have a sort of you know weird greeting card uh, image of Christ with sort of rosy cheeks and blue eyes and usually holding some kind of barnyard animal. Um, 
you know, the, the image of Christ that is proposed by the church is Christ gloriously crucified and resurrected, that the experience of Christ and so the, the interpersonal experience of Christians in the church, someone is Christ in every interaction and someone is in being Christ is always called to die for the other one, is always called to take the sins of the other on themselves, is always called to mount the cross, and in doing so, experience the resurrection, experience that, you know, the the church believes that heaven is not a, a promise sort of dangled in front of us, but something that can be experienced in the moment, um, that, you know, we can have a foretaste of heaven in truly uh, uniting ourselves to Christ, uh, both physically in the sacraments, but also spiritually in in trying to emulate this witness of love in in and and that love is always self-sacrificing it is always in a sense superhuman in that sense and that's well said christ is uh, uh, christ as other people is a is a is a pithy and um useful uh counterpoint to hell as other people i'm i've not heard it said quite that way before but i like it i'm i'm, I'm glad i could delight and amuse you you have indeed ed Oh, well, we've been talking about boats and, um, you know, J.D.'s crummy week for a little while now. Um, if you like, we can talk about the news, Ed, or if you would like to talk about baseball for three minutes, you can even do that. A friend of mine told me yesterday, a regular listener to the podcast, a guy who frequently comments about the podcast, uh, you know, to me and, 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 a, and a good friend, told me that he tends to fast forward the first you know, 10 minutes of small talk, and then he tends to fast forward the games at the end because what he's really interested in is the red meat. And I can't have that. So what I've decided, Ed, is that we should embed the small talk uh, far, in a far more integrated way into our substantive conversation so that he has no choice but to hear your opinions about, I don't know, Andres Galarraga or whatever it is that you are thinking. Is that That's a baseball player, right? I, I, I have no particular baseball offering this week. I am, you know, the the Cubs are terrible this season, and that's, you know... I mean, they won. Uh, they beat the Dodgers, but you know, they beat the Dodgers with their their ace pitcher, quote unquote, or what was supposed to be their ace pitcher coming into the season, giving up seven runs for six strikeouts, and his ERA is still over six, I think. So you know, they're, they're having a terrible season, and they're probably going to dump every single name player they have. This is a walk year for over half the starting the opening day starting roster. I mean, this is this is going to be a train wreck of a season, but it's all right. I'm a Cubs fan, so I enjoy it. Um, did you did you see this uh, thing with Tony La, this interview with Tony Larusa this week? No. He, <laughs> so you know you, they put a runner on second in extra innings now. Yeah. Like, and are we going to talk about that? Because that'll really get me going. If well, we're just going to talk about the way that these rules have been very complicated. Um, you, you use the guy, the runner on second, um, is the guy who made the last out in the previous. Inning, um, he's the base runner, second base. So you know, three. If there's three men up, three men down, three people strike out. The guy who had the third strikeout is the is the base runner um, at, at second base. At you know, at the at, at your at your next at bat, an extra. And innings. do you know how that's credited in the game? Because like we've talked about this before, that baseball is is about is yeah, a subjective yeah, yeah. sport. It requires to be watched, and it's it is as much about the assignation of credit or blame for every action as it is about the action itself having happened. So you, it's it's credited as an error. Huh. The getting to second base is credited as well, an error. Well, because you have to figure out, you have to be able to record in the scoring of the game how the, how the guy, guy got, got on to second the... base. And so it's credited uh, as an error. An error to the opposing team. No, just an error. Okay, but an error is usually assigned to one team or the well, other. Well, I'm assigning it to Rob Manfred. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, so anyway, so um, there's a tie game, and they're going extra innings. LaRusso is the manager of the Chicago White Sox. He um, he puts the guy who made the third out in the previous inning on second base, Liam Hendricks, their, their closer. 
And Liam Hendricks is not a particularly good base runner and ends up flubbing a thing and ends up costing them the game. And someone says to him, well, you know, after after the game, someone says to him, well, you know, if the pitcher made the last out in the previous inning, you can use the guy who precedes him in the batting order. And LaRusso just started cracking up and said, basically, I cannot keep track of the rules of baseball anymore. No, Th- this, guy is a, this guy is a sort of, you know, baseball le- legend who says, look, you, this game has gotten so complicated that I don't, I don't, I don't know. I guess you know better than me, which I just thought was made for TV. <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah, unwatchable garbage. I mm-hmm. cannot, I, I can't take it. I just, I can't. But let's, let's talk, JD. So there's something else that I would like to talk about. Um, just if I, there's, if a guy, if the guy's a Hall of Famer and he doesn't know the rules of baseball, you got to ask yourself if it's his fault or the fault of the rapidly changing rules of baseball. Is all I'm saying. I don't think you have to ask. I think it's perfectly clear whose <laughs> fault this is. They live in a gigantic office in Madison Avenue, and they're basically a TV venture capital company at this point, and I hate them. Um, what do you want to talk about, buddy? Well, okay, so the Pope announced a thing, or rather the Vatican Press Office announced a thing this week, and I, mm-hmm. I'm interested mm-hmm. in your take, because I've written a little bit about it yeah, I like for tomorrow, um, and we have no details about it as yet. So this is an open field. There's no background right. necessary right. here. This is Well, all right. we know is that next Tuesday, the Pope is going to issue a new moto proprio, in which he's going to somehow formalize or institutionalize or place on an institutional footing the Ministry of Catechist, mm-hmm, 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 which the mm-hmm. Pope has said, and this is from a 2018 conference uh, on the subject, and he he you know said some things there, and one of the the quote that he said at this 2018 conference, which the Vatican Press Office put out. Um, next to this announcement that there's this motor proprio next week is that being a catechist is the vocation not something you do or not doing a job not doing the job of catechist. i see i see and i i have some thoughts about this i have some some reservations about uh this um i i think it's good i think the i think catechists are important i think the ministry of catechist is very important i think we we need it and we need a lot more of it um, nevertheless, I have some some anxieties around how how this might um, this move by the Pope might be received in different parts of the church. But I'd be interested to take your temperature. Uh, I am happy to give it to you. Um, everywhere I go these days, someone wants my temperature to make sure that I can enter into the room. They're scanning me and probing. I I don't know, but anyhow, I'm happy to give you my temperature. At, um, <clears throat> Let's start with this. Uh, in the United States, when we say that someone is a catechist, what we mean is that they teach religious education, maybe in CCD or maybe um, uh, at, at a Catholic school, or maybe we mean that the person is a member of an ecclesiastical, an ecclesial movement. I think that Neocatechumenal Way, for example, uses the term catechist to refer to people who are in some way involved in the leadership of local uh, well, I think it's supposed to always and everywhere just mean what it says, which is a catechist is one who catechizes, one right, who ends yes, up the catechism a, of the church. Right. Yes, indeed. But I'm saying the, the, what we tend, the, the way in which we tend to think of that being done is generally sort of through religious instruction. And uh, and then I think that there's some reference to it in, in that ecclesial movement of the neocatechumenal way, but I can't remember quite the details of it. But um, the term is used in different ways in other parts of the world. So in many parts of what we might call the developing world, um, a, the function of a catechist is a sort of stable, is the function of a stably appointed layperson, a person possessive of an ecclesiastical office, in fact, um, who... Uh, who um, having received some instruction in the faith, um, in the, both the content of the faith and the Christian life, um, it organizes, 
uh, masses and organizes sort of charitable apostolates in a parish under the direction of a parish pastor, a parish pastor whose territory, whose parish territory might be very, very large. So I had a classmate in Canton Law School who was Congolese, Father Jean-Claude. And Father Jean-Claude was the pastor of a parish that was um, itself larger than my home state of New Jersey. It was in the, you know, outlands of, of, uh, of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and um, it, he had something like 70 villages in his parish. And, uh, and so he, you know, Father Jean-Claude, before he became a canon law student, was just uh, riding a circuit throughout his own parish to uh, offer masses and hear confessions and things like that. But in, in many of those villages, or at least in the central villages, he had appointed uh, a layperson who had received some instruction at a diocesan catechetical school and who not only um, taught the faith, but who organized um, periods of Eucharistic adoration, who organized the masses when Father Jean-Claude was going to come to town, who organized um, confessions when Father Jean-Claude was going to come down, but also who buried the dead, who was delegated to witness marriages as a layperson, uh, who was delegated to baptize babies as a layperson because informal mortality was high and the priest wasn't there very often. So he had a very broad set of functions in an ecclesiastical office. and uh, A sort of ni- Canon 917-2 arrangement? A, a, a bit of a 917-2 arrangement, except he, he was only for, a, again, a, a 917-2 is a thing about a parish that is led by a sort of layperson, but a, a bit of that, but... Um, but again, he was only, each of these catechists was only in a very small part of the parish. Right, um, the parish he, was a but, giant territory right, with yeah. lots of churches in it. Right, exactly. But the catechist was sort of commissioned to take care of the local church and to perform a number of religious functions in addition to proclaiming the faith. Communion calls, visiting the sick, as I say, burying the dead, um, uh, witnessing marriages and baptizing babies. Um, and he had essentially an ecclesiastical office. Um, so Jean, Father Jean-Claude had that in, in the Congo. I was talking with someone the other day who told me that that's that model is pervasive, and uh, he he had spent some time in Papua New Guinea, and he said that that model is pervasive in Papua New Guinea, and that catechist, you know, that at one point there was talk even in some of the dioceses of Papua New Guinea about having, uh, about encouraging more vocations to the permanent diaconate, but the thought was that catechists already did a lot of the things that deacons might have been thought to do. Um, I when I was in I was in Nairobi a couple of years ago, and I spent almost a whole day with a person who had the stable sort of ecclesiastical office and job of catechist who took care of um, the. The, both the church and the people in one sort of parish location in, a, in an inner city slum that had many, many parish locations over a broad parish. And this exists in Latin America, too. Um, and that it exists in Latin and South America, too, is central to understanding this, because what the Pope is doing is following through on Curita Amazonia and the Amazon Synod. You'll remember, Ed, that there was discussion of the need to sort of commission and regularize faith leaders in various parts of the Amazon that only see a priest maybe once a year, and also to find some way um, when uh, the faith leaders of particular communities are women to sort of give them some official commissioning. You, you, you of course, remember that during the Amazon Synod, there was a lot of discussion about a sort of quasi-diaconate for women, a sort of non-sacramental diaconate, and the Pope ultimately didn't like that idea. He didn't go with that idea, but he did say, you know, when women are faith leaders in a community, it is true that they need some sort of commissioning from the church so that they have, there's something, there's something that tells people that they are to be a leader of faith in the community and those kinds of things. So what I think the document is going to do is going to establish some norms for this function of catechists, which already exists in the in the code. You can take a look at, I think, uh, Canon 785.1, which has this broader sense of, of, uh, of what a catechist is. Um, and uh, I think there's a couple other canons that indicate that a catechist, if, if a priest is absent, a catechist should, for example, be a minister of baptism before another layperson should, et cetera, et cetera. So it already exists. What I think it's going to do, this, this document is going to do, is... Um, broaden, you know, provide a sort of theological excursus for that ministry, and then some substantive norms that both um, 
explain the possible functions of a catechist and then also limit the capacity of a catechist, clarify that catechists can't anoint people, you know, can't can anoint the dead and the, or excuse me, <laughs> anoint the sick and the sacrament of the sick and those kinds well, of things. Well, they can't anoint the dead either. They can't anoint the dead either, right? I mean, so no clarify, can, but... clarify those things and perhaps talk about the fact that a catechist, you know, ought to be commissioned in some sort of quasi-liturgical ritual, I suspect they're going to say, and at the same time say that a catechist ought to be remunerated justly. I, I, I think for us in the United States, it will be a little unusual. The tricky part for the bishops will be figuring out whether this is how this relates to the CCD teacher or even a DRE, who, who, who a DRE is interesting, you know, a sort of professional director of religious education in a parish or professional youth minister in a parish is very interesting because all of those things that I was just talking about are much, much, much more sort of professionalized in an American parish um, in that the catechist's job, if you ask the catechist what his job is, he's just like, well, to take care of the people. You know, um, uh, in the United States, it's sort of much more professionalized and not... Um, regarded as a sort of way of living. And so the question will be how sort of... And this of is exactly what the Pope has that, said, right. is that it's yeah. a vocation, it's not a job. So how will how will that interface with the sort of Amer- Western and American conception of what we often call lay ecclesial ministers, um, which which tends to focus on a sort of more professionalized vision of that kind of role? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's good. I mean, I, 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 I think the function of catechists in other parts of the world are hugely important, and I think, indeed, if, if women are faith leaders in communities, there's obviously no reason why a catechist, that, that I can see, there's obviously no reason why the role of catechist should be restricted um, only only to men, um, uh, and if women are sort of faith leaders and there's a, you know, a need to kind of clarify that they are doing something in, in, in a certain way in nomine ecclesia, I think that's important, um, which is what the Pope has said. Um, so I, you know, I think it just probably, unless the document has been done carefully and thoughtfully, will present, um, more challenges of understanding in places like the United States where this catechist function is a totally different kind of reality. I think you're right. But you have, you're more skeptical. You said you were more skeptical than I am. No, I, I'm not skeptical of the idea. I'm, I'm in favor of the, I, I'm in favor of the role of catechist. I'm in favor of recognizing its, recognizing its importance. Um, you know, all of the things that, that you said about, you know, how it operates in different parts of the world that are very um, foreign to the mentality of, say, your average parish in, in, in um, the developed West. Uh, all, of that is, all of that is true. And even closer to home, you know, there, I, I would say there are few, if any, um, ministries in the church that, uh, apart from those touching the sacraments, that are more important than that of catechists. That is literally catechizing, handing over the faith. Um, you know, training people in the faith, and I. So I'm I'm a hundred percent behind um, giving that more shape, more body, more um, you know dignity, more recognition, um, and hopefully a little bit more formalization. I do worry. Uh, you mentioned the the debate uh, at the Amazonian Synod and the call for um, ordination of women, and there was the call for, as you said, a sort of non sacramental ordination uh, of sort of lady deacons and there there is very much in the church um not least in germany the the still ongoing uh demand for the sacramental ordination of women which is the church has repeatedly and definitively stated is a theological impossibility which the church cannot change and i worry that um, some sort of uh, broadened or elevated understanding of the dignity of, of catechist will be used as a sort of proxy for or stepping stone to sacramental ordination of women. And I think that would be a shame because on the one hand, um, 
if you if you do that if you treat it that way you are negating and you know undercutting its separate and actual charism and dignity and everything which is goes against presumably what the whole what the whole point of what the pope is doing is which is to say there is this thing and it has its own unique character and dignity and vocation and that's important and we should celebrate it and we should uh, pay it the respect it deserves so that's one problem what the other problem with it is of course uh, there's there's a bitter and dangerous irony to appointing people who don't accept the church's teaching to hand over the faith yeah it's true. which is you know, a sort of disgusting irony that I, I worry may come to pass in some places. Although, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Germany, um, and I'm glad you brought up this possibility, because this is not the first thing like this. If that's what it is, which is what I think it's going to be, you know, I've been trying to get my hands on the document, but I haven't been able to. If you have the document and you'd like to send it to me, dear listeners, you're welcome to, but I haven't been able to get my hands on it yet. Um, but if that's what it is, um, uh, a stepping stone in some way to... Or, or if what it is is to sort of formalize the ministry of catechists everywhere and all that... Well, we all, we recently had what was it? Gosh, well, I don't know, three months ago, the um, a modo proprio that that provided for the possibility that women could be uh, instituted electors and acolytes, which was which is a sort of significant change from the history of those ministries in the life of the church, because technically, you know, historically they've always been tied to formation for sacred orders or considered to be a part of the, the minor orders of the clerical state and these kinds of things. And so it was a major, major change. And a lot of people sort of, I think, chicken little and said the sky is definitely falling and this is a precedent towards women's ordination, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not convinced that... Uh, I, I don't I think get it, it. I don't think it will be a precedent towards yeah. women's ordination because it's impossible, so it's not going to happen. Right, exactly. You can't... And, and, and I'm not but that doesn't mean it can't be abused by those who it, it, don't it, accept it can. the possibility. It, it, it unquestionably can be abused. I'm not convinced that um, broadening the, po- the broadening participation now catechists are already not segregated by by gender. Women can already be catechists, so there's no there won't be any broadening here. But there will be a sort of institutionalization and a more awareness of this kind of thing in the in the developed West. But I'm not convinced that sort of more formally and more concretely broadening the kinds of things that can be done by virtue of baptism um, has to be looked at as um, therefore. Uh, uh, a sort of precursor or a potential precursor or um, a sort of uh, a nose under the cam- camel's nose under the tent uh, for a movement towards a women's, you know, diaconal ordination of women, a quasi-diaconal ordination of women or any of those things. I, I, because it's, I think it's equally plausible to say that by broadening and formalizing the kinds of things that can be done by virtue of baptism— one is able to draw a clearer line between the nature of sacred orders itself and the nature of the lay Christian vocation itself. That if we're able, you know, why is it, okay, so baptism, you know, when the priest isn't around in many parts of the world, a catechist will baptize. And I think it's very good that a priest baptizes. And I think a priest ordinarily ought to baptize and all of those things. But if we are able to say, yeah, in some parts of the world, it is very common that the priest doesn't baptize because of X, Y, and Z, and because baptism, because conferral of baptism is not um, a necessary exercise of sacred orders, we're better able to sort of crystallize what sacred orders is and what the lay vocation is, and that crystallization helps us to better be able to distinguish them and understand the value and importance of both. If sort of if sort of we think that ev- all the sacred things are done by clerics, period, we run the risk of failing to understand the dig- both the dignity of baptism and the unique dignity of sacred orders and the uniquely ordained things that um, priests are both are for and do yeah i I think that's right i mean uh a a curiosity i have about this forthcoming mode appropriate will be if and 
how it recognizes the the difference between not just understanding of the role of catechists, but even awareness of the role of catechists in the church in different parts of the world. Um, and, and if it makes any sort of uh, distinction or provision for, you know, this role is especially suitable for this kind of circumstance or situation. You know, if it is rooted in the experience of the church in places like some parts of Africa or Latin America, um, it'll be interesting to see if that's made explicit or if this is going to just be a universal document for the universal church, which is what it will be. Um, in which case, you know, I, I a catechist in Munich is not a catechist in the Congo. Um, right. And, and I think unless there is some accounting of that mm-hmm. in the document, I think there will be some wiggle room for it to continue to be different things in different places. And that may not necessarily shake out in the best way always and everywhere. I think that's absolutely true. As I sort of, sort of predicated a lot of what I was saying on, um, as long as the document is well done, and I haven't seen the document, so I have no idea if it's well done or not. Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, but if you have it, I haven't seen it yet. Well, I, I don't have it. I no, would I don't have mean written, you. I would, I, mean have, our... I would have already published it if I had it. <laughs> no, I mean our listeners. Not our in full. I'm not a jerk, but I would have, you know, given, <laughs> given, given some hints. Given uh, what I would have done it. is read it and then said, uh, well, I think that it'll probably say X, Y, or Z, and then when it came out i'd be like hey look i it looks like i was right no i would not have done that I would have you, you probably would have but that's the difference between you and me is you like to look prescient <laughs> and able to understand i just like to look secretly well informed <laughs> oh boy okay well edward are you ready to call it a week uh yeah i suppose i am um You're... and uh You've had a rough one, man. I... Well, it's just been a long, been a long week. Next week, Ed, I will be joining you on the podcast from the wilds of Tennessee. I am going on a little reporting trip to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, to continue my reporting of um, of the uh, ecclesial situation in the diocese of Knoxville. That was uh, that began with um, uh, our reporting about um, complaints that have been received at the congregation, or not complaints. Cons- reports that have been received at the Congregation for Bishops regarding the Episcopal ministry of Bishop Rick Sticka. We have uh, filed a couple of reports of, uh, about um, those reports to the Congregation for Bishops and about what they are about and some of the some issues, ongoing administrative and leadership issues in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. But something happened the other day where Bishop Sticka, the Bishop of Knoxville, um, called me up and asked me uh, if I would like to come down and interview him a couple of times. Uh, to kind of provide a fuller view of the thing. And, of course, it is our goal always to provide a full view of the thing. So I'm going down to Knoxville to uh, interview Bishop Sticka a couple of times and um, uh, see some things in the diocese and see some people in the diocese, and uh, that will be that'll be that'll be the thing. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure whatever you encounter will be worth reading about. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, and Ed and JD project. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And please, in your charity, uh, pray for a friend of the show, uh, the late Father Robert Badger, who died this week. Uh, Pray for the repose of his soul and the consolation of his family. Thanks, everybody.